think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church uh, at this time. The rest of you want to get out your uh, sermon outline. It says a confession of faith in Christ. You want to have that out. While they're leaving last week, we uh, uh, opened with an illustration of Johnny Lang. And uh, that night he won a Grammy for the best gospel rock album. I guess that means on Oscar night I have to open with a movie uh, illustration. We're at the end of John chapter 6. So starting at verse 60, reading through the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. It is before us. We pray now that you would open our hearts and minds, that we might understand and accept and believe what you have to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Myth of the Greener Grass, uh, J. Allen Peterson tells the story of a woman who was at lunch with 11 other women. And they were all young moms who'd gone out to lunch together while their children were in preschool. And one woman asked the group, how many of you have been faithful to your husbands throughout your marriage? And only one woman out of 12 raised her hand. And that evening, this one particular woman told her husband the story and added that she herself had not raised her hand. But I have been faithful, she assured him. Well, then he asked, why didn't you raise your hand? Because I was ashamed. She was ashamed of being faithful. Once upon a time in our society, in our not-so-recent past, the burden of shame fell upon those people who broke their vows, who were unfaithful. But today in our topsy-turvy, what's up is down, what's bad is good, what's wrong is right, mixed-up society, all of that has changed. The proud people are the unfaithful people. The bold people are the ones who boast of their wickedness. The loud people are the ones who want their 
legitimate acts to be considered legitimate. They're illegitimate acts to be considered legitimate. One only needs to take a random stroll through the Internet to see a society which desires to destroy itself. And whether we're faced with structural evils in our society, like pornography or abortion, or personal evils like greed or unfaithfulness, Christians often don't know what to do, and often they don't know what to say. And we're reluctant to stand against the tide. We want to fit in with our peers, and we want to fit in with our culture, and we just want to fit in, period. And so far too often we're ashamed of being right. And here at the end of John 6, Jesus is dealing with a similar situation. He's just given them a very hard teaching earlier in this chapter in his discourse on being the bread of life. And even though it was the truth, there were many followers who were ashamed of what he said. They were ashamed of being right. And so they turned their backs on him and left. The text says they turned their backs and no longer walked with him. So let's look at this situation a bit closer. First we see verses 60 through 66, there was open defection. It says there, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The text starts off by the disciples complaining about this hard teaching where Jesus has told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be true followers of his. And they don't really understand the full meaning of what he's saying. The Lord's Supper hasn't been instituted yet. It just sounds too strange for them to accept. And so we have the problem of grumbling. We read in verse 61, they've started grumbling. And the dictionary defines grumbling as harsh and surly comments in a low tone of voice to mumble in discontent. And his followers are complaining about what Jesus said, which was looked at last week. They complained his teaching was too hard. The problem was not only that it was too hard to understand, but that it was too hard to accept. See the crowd, the lukewarm, what's-in-it-for-me type of followers who were prepared to follow Jesus as long as he didn't make too many demands of them. They were interested in food as long as they were being fed, they followed. And they were interested in the miracles as long as they saw amazing miracles, they followed. But then the demands came. The clear call to know Christ is the only way to God the Father. The insistence on believing and obeying the words of Christ. The need for each person to receive Christ inwardly as one receives bread and wine. The necessity for all to come to Christ to put their faith in him as Savior and follow him unconditionally as Lord. And when the points of Jesus' sermon got sharp, these thin-skinned followers went into retreat and turned back. They said it was too hard for them to accept. But actually, as John Calvin has said, it was not Christ's words that were hard, but it was their hearts that were hard. And so they grumbled, mumbled, complained, and walked away. See, their main problem was not just grumbling, but rather it was the problem of unbelief. Ultimately, the people's problem lay in believing what Jesus had said. They liked what he did. 
feeding them, healing people, standing up to the Pharisees. But they hated what he said. They refused to grasp hold of his words. He says in verses 63 and 64, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so many rejected Jesus, and as verse 66 says, they turned back and no longer walked with him. As long as he talked to others, as long as he talked about others, they were okay. But when he started talking to them, it got a little too personal, a little too close to home. And the problem wasn't just a failure to understand, but a failure to accept. Now we're at the end of Jesus' Bread of Life uh, discourse. And the theme of this great message is faith in Jesus Christ. For the last uh, few weeks, we've tried to look at what John means when he summons us to believe in Jesus Christ. Many people, of course, do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Why do some believe when so many don't? That's really our question this morning, because that's the question Jesus set out to answer. What John Bunyan called that blessed sixth chapter of John, a text that had brought light and peace into his soul early on in his Christian life, is the very same discourse that provokes many of the Jews to turn away from Jesus. And the discourse begins with the notice that many Jews in the crowds that came to hear Jesus and see him perform miracles didn't believe. It's the point of the exchange at the very beginning of this discussion, all the way back in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And now at the end of the discourse, the same point's being made. There's those who didn't believe in Christ. Many among the Jews, even one among his own disciples. The discourse begins with a statement about people not believing in Jesus and ends with a statement about people not believing in Jesus. Those statements serve as an inclusio. An inclusio is a statement of a theme at the beginning and at the end of a text by which the reader is alerted to the theme of all the material in between. In other words, just as belief is the subject of this discourse, so is unbelief. And throughout the discourse, Jesus raises the issue of unbelief that he encounters among the people. He does so explicitly back in verse 36. He said, still you do not believe. In verse 43, there's a similar point made. They're grumbling over what Jesus said. They have a hostile, defensive skepticism. There's scorn in their tone of voice as they talk about what he said. We get it again in verse 52 and again in verse 60. And how does Jesus explain this? How does he account for the unbelief of some and the belief of others? Well, right after his statement that many didn't believe in him, he said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. And whoever comes to Jesus, he will preserve and keep to eternal life. The point's made again in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. The Lord Jesus came into the world to save a people given to him by his Father. These, every one of these, he will in fact save. 
Then again, immediately following another statement of unbelief, he makes the same point more explicitly. In response to their refusal to receive him, he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Same point again. The Father has given his Son a people to save, and those people will believe, and Christ will see to it that they will be saved. As you can imagine, there's been lots of efforts over the centuries to dilute the strong predestinarian tone of these verses. To dilute the force of Jesus' claim that the explanation of anyone's salvation lies finally in the will and power and action of God himself. Of course, this isn't the only place in the Gospel of John we find strong statements of divine sovereignty. If you remember, the book began with such a statement, John's opening summary, John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who receive him, uh, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here we find Jesus saying the ultimate explanation for faith and salvation lies in the election and sovereign working of God, bringing some to faith, leaving others in their unbelief. A hard saying, absolutely. A true saying, of course. One must receive and believe in Christ, just as one must feed on Christ for eternal life. D.A. Carson's a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he says in his commentary on John that in this passage, John was making an allusion, a reference to Jeremiah 15, 16, where the prophet tells God, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So we see here that Jeremiah's assessment of God's words is the same as Jesus' assessment of his own words. One cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. For truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus' words. And it's always been that way. All the way back in the Old Testament, God gave them manna, the bread from heaven, that they had been talking about. Well, all the way back in Deuteronomy, it says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this identical claim has now been made for the words of Jesus precisely because he himself is the word. See, if the words of Jesus had been rightly grasped, then instead of rejecting Jesus, people would see him as the bread from heaven, the one who gave his flesh for the life of the world, the one who alone provides eternal life, and they will receive him and believe in him, taste eternal life even now, and enjoy the promises that he will raise them up at the last day. But his words were not rightly grasped. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. So the people, and the text says, got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They turned back and no longer walked with him. They went back to their old life, their old religion, their old hopeless situation. But not the true disciples, not the twelve. For in them we see firm 
determination, verse 67, firm determination. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So first we see that they're able to recognize his position. Peter says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Right up front, Peter addresses Jesus by his position, Lord. That's crucial. It's impossible for us to come to know Christ without recognizing who he is and what he's done. It's impossible for us to stand by Christ if we aren't in submission to his lordship. That means believing and obeying his word, not just some of it, but all of it. If you remember back in Luke 6, Jesus condemned the half-hearted followers by asking them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then Luke 9, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then he's not being followed in your life. But Peter knew the Lord, and with firm determination, he stood against the tide of the crowd and declared the truth as others are walking away. Peter and the apostles had enough experience with Jesus to be sure that they didn't want to follow anyone else. They had seen his miracles. They'd been with him on the sea. They had learned about faith and the lesson of the leftovers as they watched 5,000 people get fed on a hillside. It was now unthinkable. They should abandon their fellowship for anything else or anyone else on earth. The casual Christians complained and left. But Peter and the apostles chose to remain in the company of the committed. Not only were they able to recognize his position, but they could recognize his person. He goes on to say, verse 69, We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Whatever the case with the others, we have believed and have come to know. They've made their decision. They've come to a place of faith and have chosen to remain there. They've come to a state of knowledge and have chosen to remain in it. And Peter is emphasizing they had a certainty of both belief and knowledge. Their trust was in Christ. Their loyalty was to Christ. They had lost the uncertainty that seemed to define the casual Christian. The twelve were committed, and they knew who they were committed to. To whom shall we go, Peter says. John Phillips of the Moody Bible Institute uh, writes, Who, having heard Christ, would want to go to Buddha or Confucius or Mohammed, turn away from Christ to the dead founder of a false religion? Who, having heard Christ, would want to go to Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, turn away from Christ to the lifeless speech of a pagan philosopher? Who, having heard Christ, would want to go to Darwin or Marx or Mao, turn away from Christ to one of the modern secular humanists? Who, having heard uh, Christ, would want to go to Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris and turn away from Christ to one of today's postmodern professional atheists? To do that, to do any of those things, is to exchange light for darkness, life for death, hope for despair, and heaven for hell. There is no one else to whom we can go. 
Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Similar way, a great confession of faith that Peter made in Matthew 16. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter and the apostles were so convinced they would not go away. There was nowhere else to go. But, yeah, there's always a but. There's another problem. And it's the problem of subtle deception. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see, the writer of the gospel, the apostle John, was never concerned with all of the man-made divisions between people. He isn't interested in whether you're a Jew or Gentile, man or woman, free or slave, black or white, rich or poor, northern or southern, city or country, American, African, Asian, or Latin. The only dividing line between people for the Apostle John lies in their response to Jesus. Do you accept his words and believe in him? Or do you reject his word and turn away from him? This passage is crying out for us to make that kind of decision. Are we really interested in following him every day and at all costs? As the old saying goes, if tomorrow you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or are you playing the game of casual Christianity where what you do on Sunday has no effect on what you do on Monday? You see, even among the twelve, there was subtle deception. Jesus says, did I not choose you? Yet one of you is the devil. And the apostles didn't know who he was talking about at the time, but Jesus did. Jesus isn't deceived by mere outward profession. He looks at the heart. He looks to see what the inner profession is. He looks to see if faith is really there. He looked at hearts then. He looks at hearts now. And Jesus accepted Judas into his apostolic band. But that doesn't mean that he didn't know what sort of person Judas was. Think about that. For three years, he allowed Judas to follow him around, to sit at his feet, to hear his teaching, to witness his miracles. For three years, Jesus loved Judas, all the while knowing that he would betray him. Every step of his ministry was taken with his betrayer only a half step behind. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus not only said that, he lived that. And then I find it very interesting, almost a side note. And I don't know why John put it in there. Verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. There's got to be a word for fathers here. This is the only place he's introduced. What about Simon Iscariot, the father of Judas. His name is introduced here. Was he perhaps partly to blame for the sly, heartless, unscrupulous behavior of his son? What kind of father was he? What kind of example did he set before his growing boy? What was he like at home? How did he treat his wife? How did he do his job? Was he a religious man? 
What kind of friends did he invite to his house? Was he partly to blame? Why is his name introduced here? Has his name been brought to our attention to receive our pity? That a man should have a son so lacking in conscience he could find it in his heart to betray the Christ, the Son of the living God? We don't know. It doesn't say he's just mentioned. But we ignore it at great risk. I think there must be a reason why he's mentioned. This past Tuesday, this is a long uh, conclusion, um, but this past Tuesday, Dr. James Emery White is the new president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where I went to seminary, and he spoke on the campus of Harvard University, uh, still one of our flagship universities. And he spoke on the question, is Harvard still about veritas? Veritas, as you may know, is the Latin word for truth. So he said, is Harvard still about truth? And veritas serves as Harvard's motto. And uh, you can they sell it on all of their sweatshirts. And so he wrote about spending this evening at Harvard. And uh, he has a blog at SeriousTimes.com. Listen to what he says. I, I just excerpted part of it. It was a provocative title for an address purposefully selected by the campus Christian group sponsoring the event to pique the curiosity of the university community. From the response, it was a well-chosen topic. I spoke on the pitfalls of postmodern perspectivalism, the importance of truth, the disingenuous nature of the virtue of tolerance and this fallacy of equating parity with pluralism. He was at Harvard. <laughs> Along the way, we traversed widely through culture. We discussed YouTube and AOL, novelist James Frey's Million Little Lies, and what was behind Nietzsche's famed claim that God is dead. We took note of the differences between Christianity and Buddhism, between Stephen Colbert's truthiness and Jesus' staggering claim to be the truth. And we'll get back to that. We looked at the worldview that allowed Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, as well as Doug Copeland's uh, plaintive writing in his book, Life After God. He was the guy who coined the term Generation X. The final challenge was clear. It was not about whether Harvard was still about Veritas, but whether they the students in the audience were still about Veritas. Then came the time for questions and answers without delay. Student after student came forward to the microphones, eager to pose their questions. I braced myself for the fiery debate I was sure would follow. But instead of challenge, they wanted to deepen their understanding. Instead of argument, they wanted to pursue how such a worldview might uh, factor into the moral issues of the day. They had searching questions about Christianity and how claims to truth rooted in faith would play into the wider scope of policy and community. They were still about veritas. And not just any veritas, they were about the veritas that was once an integral part of Harvard's life. Because it's in its original context, the veritas of Harvard's motto is not just an abstract word but it was a truth related to the person and work of Christ. Harvard's original motto was actually Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, 
truth for Christ and church. Rather than separating faith and reason, Harvard was founded to integrate faith and reason. Now it doesn't even warrant a single course. In a report released in October last year, Harvard Harvard University's uh, Task Force on General Education recommended adding a required course on reason and faith to their undergraduate core curriculum. It was promptly dismissed by the faculty. Indeed, in the campus newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, psychology professor Steven Pinker argued that the persistence of religion is an American anachronism in an era in which the rest of the West is moving beyond it. The Wall Street Journal responded in an editorial that such a stupendously ignorant claim, ignoring the prominence of faith to most of the world's population, demonstrates the need for just such a course. However, under faculty pressure, they eventually announced they had withdrawn the Reason and Faith course, replacing it with a requirement on what it means to be human. So he finishes, he says, so while Harvard students are still about Veritas, Harvard's faculty, it would seem, are not. It should be noted, this new class on a philosophy of humanity will be taught in Emerson Hall, the primary academic building for philosophy. Emerson Hall has an inscription chiseled on the front facade right over the door. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It's from Psalm 8. He says the irony is exquisite. (laughs) Things haven't changed much. They really haven't. At the end of each year, the editors of the Oxford American Dictionary, which is uh, sort of a subset of the Oxford English Dictionary, those two dictionaries are the final word as what qualifies as English and particularly American English. All other dictionaries look to them. They sort of have the last say. And they pick a word of the year. In 2005, the word was podcast. And uh, and the word for 2006, it came out, was the word truthiness. The word truthiness is not actually a new word. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. But it burst on the scene through the uh, Comedy Central Television Network, specifically through the show The Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert is a comedian, and uh, his, uh, his news show is a satirical spinoff of another one of their satirical spinoff news shows, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And in this show, uh, he does a purposeful uh, spoof of uh, the Fox Network's um, Bill O'Reilly and him. And so this is a sort of a comedy show about a comedy show about a real show. And the idea behind truthiness is that the actual facts don't matter. What matters is how you feel, how you as an individual are the final arbiter of truth. And in an interview, Stephen Colbert said, truthiness is sort of what you want to be true, as opposed to what the facts support. So not only do we discern truth truth for ourselves from the facts, now we feel free to create truth for ourselves despite the facts. It's what we want to be true. How does that relate to John 6? John 6, Jesus is claiming an exclusive privilege. 
He claims that he and he alone can save men and women from their sins and lift them up to heaven, and only those who believe in him will be saved. It's not the only place he says such a thing. We're more familiar with John uh, 14.6. In fact, we just sang uh, from it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it was this that did Jesus in with the crowd, with all of his fellow Jews. It was this exclusivity in his teaching. It was the claim that he alone was the Savior of the world that the Jews would have been delighted to add Jesus to their repertoire of already existing uh, religious viewpoints. But he required them to abandon that and become his followers, to exchange their faith in themselves and their faith in their works for faith in him. And so they left him, and for this later on they killed him. And from that time to this time, that's been the burden that Christian, the Christian faith has to bear in the world. I mean, you can go out into the marketplace today, tell people you believe in Jesus for your salvation, and they'll smile, and they'll be glad for you. If Jesus helps you, they think, that's great. That's really nice. I'm so glad for you. But if you go on and tell them, as Jesus told these people in John 6, that they must believe in him or they can't be saved, they're going to think less of you. They may take offense at the suggestion that they must become Christians if they're going to have eternal life. And if you go on to make explicit the implications of what you said, that is that everyone must believe in Jesus or be lost forever, secular Americans and even some religious Americans, after all, Jesus is talking to religious people here in John, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, you know, anybody all over the world, they must believe in Jesus or they cannot be saved. They must eat his flesh and drink his blood or he will not raise them up at the last day. And if you go on and admit that that's precisely the logic of the Christian faith, precisely the claim that Jesus makes, they will think of you with disgust, perhaps with pity for your arrogance, your narrow-mindedness, your harshness, your lack of humanity, the intolerance of such a view. They may rarely accuse Jesus of intolerance, but more and more people are ready to do that, but they're less forgiving of his followers. How dare we think that everyone must become as we are if they're to have eternal life? How dare we say there is but one way and only one way to God? How dare we pass judgment on the religion of others? It's an offensive thing to claim. In his day, it's an offensive thing to claim in our day. If anything, it's even more offensive today. People have a hard time believing there's such a thing as the truth. Truth that is true for everyone, always what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. Back in the year 2000, a Nobel laureate, a winner of the Nobel Prize in Science, said at a conference on intelligent design, that he found it contemptible for anyone to depend on the Bible as an authority. And yet countless highly educated and sophisticated people do and shake their heads in wonder at Nobel laureates who simply don't get it. There are people in the church today, not just in the world, but in the church, Episcopalian bishops and Presbyterian ministers among them, who, if the truth be told, have nothing but contempt for the doctrine that Jesus teaches here. 
the idea that one must believe in Jesus to be saved, that there's a great division to be made between people on the judgment day based on whether or not that man or that woman is a Christian. They regard that doctrine as a doctrine so primitive, so barbaric, so discriminatory, so patriarchal, so puritanical that no intelligent person should be tempted to believe it. And yet those same words are regarded as life and salvation to multitudes of Christians all over the world. And of course, we encounter that same separation between those who embraced Christ and those who repudiated him right here in John 6. How do we explain this critical difference between people? Why do some believe and others do not? It's an important question. Jesus doesn't dodge it. He faces it openly. Obviously, it's an important question when Jesus appeared in Israel because most people, even those who witnessed his miracles, didn't believe in him. Did it mean that he was a failure because he couldn't convince Israel that he was the Messiah? Did the failure of Israel to believe cast doubt on the claims that Jesus was making for himself? Does the fact that today more people in the world are not Christians than are, perhaps even in the church, mean there's reason to doubt that Jesus really is the Savior? It was the same way in his day. It was the same way here in John 6. There were many who heard his magnificent teaching. They saw his miracles. They saw him with their own eyes give sight to the blind and heal lepers and raise the dead and drive out demons, and they wouldn't believe in him. He made no sense to them. He wasn't attractive to them. He offended them. They didn't like him, and they didn't like what he said. His miracles may have amazed them, but their hearts remained cold. And there were others in that same day who saw the same exact things upon whose dark hearts broke the most glorious morning sun. They realized in a moment of brilliant recognition that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, that he had come into the world as the Messiah and that he and he alone could carry them to heaven. And they believed in him. They began to follow him. They changed their lives, root and branch, to serve him. And many of them suffered terribly for that, but they didn't mind. Why? Because they knew with certainty what the rest refused to believe, that Jesus Christ was the Lord and Savior of the world. How is this to be explained? The stubborn refusal to believe on the part of so many, the glad embrace of Christ on the part of so many others. Jesus tells us it's his Father's choosing of people, his illuminating their darkened hearts, his overcoming their willful rebellion against him, and his and overcoming their hatred of the truth, and drawing them powerfully to Christ, who can and will save them and will bring them to heaven. And that's the explanation still today. One man hears the gospel and knows it's true as surely as he knows he exists. It breaks his heart and heals it at the same moment. And he sees Jesus and instantly knows he's the Son of God. And another man, no worse, hears the same message and yawns. Perhaps gets red in the face with anger as the Jews in John 6 did then as Harvard professors do now. Resents the implication he's in such desperate need of forgiveness. Resents the teaching that he can't save himself. Particularly resents the fact that he must surrender his uh, freedom and conform his life to the will of God. And so like multitudes before him, he does not and will not believe. What's the difference? God has drawn one foolish sinner and hasn't drawn another. 
That's the difference. That's always the difference. Hard truth? Sure. Questions being raised uh, in your mind? Sure. Mystery here? Absolutely. But in John 6, Jesus is less interested in dealing with the mysteries and the problems than in stating the facts as an explanation of what happened in his day and what happens in our day. (coughs) And it's an important fact. It's the explanation of the single most important thing that ever happens in this world. The salvation of a lost soul. I admit, those are very hard words that Jesus spoke that day. But the longer I live, the more I see how ready all of us are to believe what we want to be true rather than what we have reason to believe is true. Most of us, certainly most of those around us, are far more interested in truthiness, what we want to be true, than in truth itself. And my friends, you will not discover the truth of things by discovering what people want to be true. This is a hard world. It's full of hard truths because God made it to be a moral world that proceeds on moral principles in which he exercises a moral judgment, his moral judgment. And men can deny it all they want, but they can't escape it. Sin pays a wage whether you want it to or not. And salvation can be found in no other name under heaven than the name of Jesus Christ, whether you and I wish it were so or not. There were three parts to this sermon. Which category, which one of those parts does your life fall into? Are you like the grumbling crowd, a life of open defection, a life that says, I'll listen as long as there's something in it for me? Or are you like Judas, the subtle deception, a life that says, I'll come to church for the status, for the approval of my family and friends, for the business contacts I can make there? Or is your life like Peter, one of firm determination, a life that says, I believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will not be ashamed of being right. Will you say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.